Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of surgery in high-risk ovarian cancer with Dr. Mitchell Clark. Dr. Clark is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at Yale University School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Dr. Clark, maybe we can start off by talking a little bit about ovarian cancer. Um, You know, many people talk about this as the cancer that whispers. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. So although ovarian cancer is not the most common gynecologic cancer that we encounter in our specialty, it is unfortunately the cancer that accounts for the greatest morbidity uh, as well as the greatest mortality among the diseases that we do treat. You're absolutely right in saying that this is the cancer that whispers because unlike a lot of the other cancers we see in our practice, the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very nonspecific and often very vague. And so so tell us more about what those symptoms might be because I'm I'm sure that there are listeners out there going, great, so there's a cancer that's potentially lethal that has symptoms that are really vague. (laughs) How am I going to know if if I have this? Absolutely. So, you know, for the most part, these symptoms occur as the ovarian tumors grow. And as you can imagine, um, it starts off with a very small tumor and progresses to something that causes a lot of pressure in the pelvis. So I tell women, anytime you feel that there's pain or pressure in the pelvis or in the abdomen, that's something that's concerning and should be brought up with your gynecologist. Beyond that, we do tell women to be aware of any changes in their weight, either weight loss or weight gain. And sometimes it can be as simple as something as bloating uh, or a bit of constipation that is just out of characteristic for what they have been experiencing in the past. We do know that ovarian cancer tends to occur in women as they get older, particularly those who are past menopause. However, there still can be many cases of ovarian cancer in women that are younger uh, than the menopausal status. And it's important to keep this in mind uh, when gynecologists as well as primary care physicians are seeing patients with these vague symptoms. Does ovarian cancer happen in young girls? So, for example, um, you know, below the age of 18 when most adult gynecologists start seeing patients? That's a great point. So there are some rare types of ovarian cancer that behave very differently than the more common types that we see in the older population. And these can happen in young girls. Uh, so it is important that um, mothers and young daughters uh, do present uh, to their pediatrician with any of these similar complaints related to increase in uh, abdominal pain uh, or a bit of bloating or, or noticing that weight gain is just uncharacteristic uh, compared to what it has perhaps been in the past as they were developing as, as an adolescent. But you know, Dr. Clark, when we think about all of these symptoms, it, you know, especially around the holiday time, it, it's pretty mm-hmm. it's pretty common to get a little bit of weight gain or, or in some of our cases, a lot of weight gain, <laughs> um, a little bit of bloating, a little bit of constipation. When, wh- is there a trigger point at which you say, you know what, 
this has been going on for X amount of time, I need to go and see the doctor? Or is it really, you know, kind of see how it goes? And if it gets to a point that's concerning to you personally, that's when you should see a doctor? Can you give us a little bit of a clue? Because some of these are so nonspecific. I'm sure all of our listeners are listening to this going, yep, I've had weight gain. I've had constipation. I've had bloating. Oh, my God, do I have an ovarian tumor? This is something that we're hearing very commonly, especially now during COVID, with many people at home uh, tending not to be as active perhaps as they were before COVID. Uh, many of the gyms and, and fitness regimens that our listeners were probably more engaged with pre-COVID are just not available. So we, we are finding patients uh, coming in with these concerns, especially related to the bloating and weight gain. I tend to tell women that if they experience these symptoms um, that persist despite changes in their diet or perhaps their their level of exercise that go beyond a few weeks to a month. These are things that should be brought to the attention of their primary care doctor or their gynecologist, especially because these are very vague symptoms. Now, I don't want to alarm our listeners and to say that everyone with constipation or everyone with a bit of bloating is likely to have an ovarian tumor, but I think it is important for both the patient and the provider to keep these things in the back of their head as we try to identify as many women as possible in the early stages of this very challenging disease. And do you find that people with ovarian tumors tend to present with, um, you know, things that may signal a loss of ovarian function? So oftentimes when we have tumors in, in various parts of the body, it'll affect the, the actual functioning of that organ. So when mm -hmm. we think about ovaries and we think about um, production of estrogen, for example, you know, people may have hot flashes and so on and so forth mm -hmm. as they go through menopause. But with ovarian cancer, if you don't have those symptoms, does that mean that that's likely okay? Or, or how often would you find people presenting with an ovarian tumor that actually presents with things like hot flashes and vaginal dryness and things like that. That's a great point. For the most part, these tumors do occur in women as they have exited menopause. And so the ovarian function is already at baseline quite low. But even in those women who are still having regular menstrual periods, uh, who are perhaps in their late 30s or early 40s, we haven't seen as much of a relationship between the hormonal status and the hormonal symptoms uh, and a link between that and an underlying ovarian pathology. Yeah. So, so important for people to, to recognize that because they may be saying to themselves, well, I'm not having, you know, hot flashes. I'm not, I'm not having tremendous pain. Um, but, but it really is a, a cancer, um, that, that whispers. Absolutely. The other question that our listeners may have is, if you've had a history of ovarian cysts, oftentimes people have gone to the gynecologist and maybe had an ultrasound or something, and they've been told, oh, you've got ovarian cysts. Does that increase their risk of ovarian cancer? Mm -hmm. So ovarian cysts are a very normal part of every woman's uh, menstrual history and uh, reproductive history. Every time uh, the cycle occurs, a cyst develops on the ovary and should regress after each menstrual cycle. What's important to remember is that as women exit menopause and are no longer having regular menstrual periods, cysts should not form as regularly and they should certainly not progress and become larger and 
more complex appearing uh, on ultrasound or any sort of imaging. So just because a woman has had cysts in the past does not necessarily mean that she will go on to develop an ovarian cancer. But it is important for women who do have cysts that may have suspicious findings on imaging that she follows regularly with her gynecologist to decide if and when uh, it merits a referral to an oncologist for a more specialized opinion. And are there any women who are particularly at risk of getting ovarian cancer, or is this kind of an equal opportunity killer? Mm -hmm. So there are a number of risk factors that make a woman more likely to um, experience an ovarian cancer in her lifetime. One of the strongest is family history. And when we think of family history, it can be divided into those women who have a known family history of a genetic syndrome that may make them more likely to experience a number of different cancers. And those who are not necessarily related to a known genetic syndrome, but do have family members, aunts, grandmothers, mothers, perhaps, who did experience an ovarian cancer. And what's the other category? It would be those that do have a known genetic predisposition. So those who are related to the BRCA gene, uh, many women uh, are familiar with that uh, genetic syndrome as it relates to risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. But we are also understanding that there are other hereditary cancer syndromes like Lynch syndrome that can also increase a woman's risk of developing certain types of ovarian cancers. So it is important in those women who have strong family histories of cancers to speak with their primary care doctor or if they do have an oncologist, to consider genetic testing if it is indicated so that we can identify those women whom perhaps could benefit from some type of prophylactic procedure to reduce their risk of developing an ovarian cancer down the road. And what about women who don't have a family history or genetic predisposition? How common or uncommon is ovarian cancer in those women? So in those who don't have those strong family risk factors, the risk is about 1% to 3% uh, for their lifetime. Now, that's quite small in comparison to some of the other cancers that we see in the gynecologic tract. But the issue is that even though it is rare, like I mentioned beginning, this disease does account for so much morbidity and unfortunately survival rates uh, are just not as good as they are for the other cancers with uh, those symptoms that we can uh, detect earlier. And, you know, when we talk about high-risk ovarian cancer, what, what exactly is that? Are there certain ovarian cancers that are more likely to uh, result in morbidity and mortality than others? Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned uh, regarding those cancers that do occur in the very young women, those are typically less aggressive cancers and those younger patients do experience a cure uh, a high percentage of the time. The more common type of ovarian cancer that we see, unfortunately, uh, is that which we call high-grade serous. And this is a subtype of ovarian cancer that is quite bad behaving, but unfortunately is the most common type that we see um, and is uh, the one that does present uh, at advanced stage due to this indolent set of symptoms that we've been talking about earlier. Yeah, so I wanted to kind of delve a little bit more into that. So um, if women present with these kind of vague symptoms and they, they've listened to this show on Yale Cancer Answers and they've decided to, you know, go and talk to their primary care physician or their gynecologist, how is that worked up? I mean, what should women expect as they advocate for themselves in making sure that if they have an ovarian cancer, it's found, um, or at least that it's ruled out. 
Absolutely. The thing I want to get across that is very important is that we do not have any screening test for ovarian cancer. And so women who've had a pap smear and a physical exam as part of their annual assessment cannot necessarily be reassured that they do not um, have an underlying ovarian cancer. So women who have these symptoms that we've talked about um, should expect their doctor to perform a very thorough physical exam that does include a pelvic exam. And then usually this is followed up with some imaging, either by ultrasound or a CT scan in conjunction with some blood tests that may help point their doctor in the direction that this may be an ovarian cancer that requires evaluation by a gynecologic oncologist. And so women who are in the high-risk group, so those women who have a very strong family history, the women who who have a genetic predisposition. You know, in some cancers, people who are at very high risk, there are some more advanced screening techniques. There's nothing for ovarian cancer in terms of blood tests or routine CT or ultrasound evaluations. Unfortunately, despite several large international trials, we have not been able to identify uh, a modality of screening that has shown to reduce the incidence of this cancer or to identify it at a stage where we could intervene and make a significant uh, difference in outcomes. Having said that, however, those women who do know that they harbor an underlying genetic predisposition to cancers like the BRCA gene cancers or Lynch syndrome should follow regularly with a gynecologist who can talk to them about some of the increased uh, surveillance that we can do or perhaps intervention through surgical removal of the tubes and ovaries at a stage prior to the development of a cancer that may be appropriate depending on the person's underlying genetic mutation. Yeah. So so you're talking about um, removing the, the ovaries and the tubes before they get a cancer to reduce the risk that they will get a cancer. Does it reduce the risk to zero um, if you no longer have your ovaries or your fallopian tubes? Is your risk of then developing ovarian cancer zero? Unfortunately, it is not absolutely zero, but it is quite close. It does bring the risk down to about below 4%. There are some uh, inherent risks that come from developing a cancer related to the lining of the abdomen called the peritoneum. This is an area of tissue that is near to where the ovary and tube would have been. But after removal of tubes and ovaries in a woman that's very high risk given her genetic predisposition, uh, her risk is significantly reduced uh, compared to what it would have been uh, if she had not undergone that prophylactic procedure. Well, that's great information for people to know. We're going to learn much more about the surgical management of high-risk ovarian cancer when we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Mitchell Clark. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mitchell Clark. We're talking about the role of surgery in high-risk ovarian cancer. And right before the break, um, Mitchell, you, you talked about the fact that in women with a genetic predisposition, even though you can remove the tubes and ovaries, it doesn't reduce their risk down to zero. You can still get cancer on the peritoneum, that lining of the abdominal cavity, although it does reduce your risk quite substantially. Mm -hmm. So my next question is, you know, in women who have been found to have ovarian cancer, we talked a little bit about the fact that this is a cancer that that really presents with very nonspecific symptoms. You go to your gynecologist or to your family physician, they do a thorough physical exam and then maybe an ultrasound or a CT scan, what happens next in terms of making the diagnosis? So after the results of these tests, many patients will refer to uh, meet with myself or one of my colleagues uh, to discuss whether or not um, all of the different aspects of the workup are pointing in the direction of, of an ovarian cancer. Typically, most women will come with a CA-125, which is a blood test that helps us understand if the findings on the CAT scan are consistent with the possible ovarian cancer. However, I do want to clarify for our listeners that this is not a test for ovarian cancer and is really just one piece of the diagnostic evaluation that we undertake uh, to help understand if the symptoms are related to an ovarian cancer. So once patients are referred to meet with us um, and these results are pointing us in the direction of an ovarian cancer, then we have to decide whether or not this patient is best suited uh, by starting with an operation or a surgical removal of her ovarian cancer, or whether or not uh, we need to consider starting with treatments such as chemotherapy. Um, And we've really evolved over the last five to 10 years in understanding how to triage women to the appropriate first step in their cancer treatment. And how is that decision made? So we historically would take all women to surgery initially, um, and there was significant morbidity associated with these very complex operations um, that involved removing all of the uh, different areas of the abdomen and pelvis where we found these cancerous tumors. However, now we understand through rigorous international trials that there are women who actually benefit from starting with chemotherapy first. Ovarian cancer is a very chemosensitive disease, as we call it, in that these cancer cells do respond to that systemic treatment and shrink the tumors down uh, in order for surgery to be uh, accomplished with less morbidity than perhaps in the past. Just like in systemic treatment like immunotherapy um, and PARP inhibition, we're trying to do that same type of precision medicine in surgery as well. We want to look at each patient very individually and assess her underlying risk factors, her underlying health status, in order to decide, is this a patient who should be initially operated on, or is this a patient who, for other reasons, should start with chemotherapy? And both of those options um, have been found to be equally efficacious. But, you know, oftentimes when we talk about treating people with chemotherapy, especially targeted therapy and immunotherapy, oftentimes there is a biopsy done that will look at the tumor and tell us whether it 
you know, has certain receptors. For example, in mm-hmm. breast cancer, we talk about HER2, uh, mm-hmm. which is also found in other cancers. For immunotherapy, we often look at checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PDL one and so on. But thus far in the workup, we haven't heard about a biopsy. So how do you make that decision of, you know, we're going to treat with chemotherapy versus surgery or immunotherapy versus surgery, and what kind of systemic therapy to use? That's a great point. So when patients are first considered whether or not they should go down the route of surgery or whether they should go down the route of chemotherapy, if chemotherapy is felt to be the best option for that woman, we do get a biopsy. As we mentioned, most ovarian cancers do present at an advanced stage, unfortunately, but this does allow us to obtain a biopsy of one of these uh, metastatic lesions somewhere in the abdomen and pelvis in order to ensure that we do have the correct diagnosis. This also allows us to begin the process of undertaking genetic testing of the tumor so that we can understand what types of targeted therapies may benefit this patient. For women who go to surgery, that tumor will be sent to our expert pathologist during the operation so that they can have a look under the microscope while the patient is asleep in order to confirm that this is an ovarian cancer. By the time the patient sees us in the office, with the combination of CA-125, the CT scan images, as well as the distribution and location of the disease on the imaging, most times we are able to make a presumptive diagnosis of ovarian cancer. But you're very correct in saying before we initiate any type of systemic treatment, we do ensure that we have confirmation of the type of cancer that this is. So... In terms of, I, I want to kind of look at both of those arms of the the tree uh, individually. For for patients who go to surgery, one of the things that you said was that the surgery tends to be quite extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so walk us through what that surgery actually looks like. I mean, do you start by by doing a kind of surgical biopsy of the tumor and sending that to your pathologist? Do you take out the whole ovary? And then what are all of these surfaces that you were talking about that are actually removed if the diagnosis of ovarian cancer is confirmed? So when women are taken to surgery, uh, we are trying to make the decision of whether or not the disease can be removed in its entirety. And what I mean by that is the goal of surgery in ovarian cancer, whether or not that surgery happens at the beginning of her cancer journey or whether it happens after some chemotherapy, is to remove all of the visible ovarian cancer tumors. Now, the ovary is open to the abdomen and pelvis inside uh, a woman's body. And so these cancer cells have a tendency to try to get out and escape and attach to that peritoneum that I talked about before. That can land on various surfaces of different organs throughout the abdomen and pelvis. And so it's important that we review those images prior to taking a woman to surgery so that it helps us understand how extensive an operation might be. For some women, their surgery might include removing the ovaries, the uterus, the cervix, as well as the omentum, which is this fat pad uh, that lays over the bowel. But for some women, their surgery may be more extensive, including removal of perhaps the spleen, uh, a segment of the bowel that is then reconnected. Every woman's cancer surgery is very individualized to her own disease. And we take a great deal of time in ensuring uh, that we select patients to take to surgery who are good candidates to have all of the visible tumors removed. We know from decades 
decades of research that the only value in surgery in ovarian cancer is when we can remove all of the visible disease, uh, if not down to a very tiny amount. If we don't feel that that can be achieved upfront, women will be triaged to that chemotherapy arm of the decision-making tree so that we can shrink down the disease at the outset and then perform an operation at a later date that removes all their visible cancer. You know, when you put it that way, Dr. Clark, it sounds like the best option for the majority of women would be to have systemic therapy first because if the cancer was resectable, having the chemotherapy first would shrink it down and, and still make it resectable, if not more resectable. And if the tumor was quite extensive, having chemotherapy or systemic therapy first would shrink that and make that option of surgery more attainable. So, it would seem to me that the patients in whom surgery first was a recommendation would be quite small. Is that right? Yeah, size is one of the characteristics that we look at in helping decide which patients will benefit from surgery at the outset. Um, for patients who have disease that is beyond um, uh, a certain size or located in multiple different places, we do know from research that those patients do benefit from this pretreatment with chemotherapy in order to reduce down the size of their ovarian cancers. And as we've been discussing a lot today, uh, most women do unfortunately present with this uh, metastatic picture. And so we are finding more and more utility in using the chemotherapy at the outset of a patient's cancer journey. But I just want every listener to know if uh, they do encounter a, a personal experience with ovarian cancer, that both options should be considered. And that's why it's so important that a gynecologic oncologist is involved in that decision making at the very beginning of her cancer journey. Is there a disadvantage to pursuing systemic therapy first? Even if you have a small tumor and it's confined to the ovary, um, if would there be a disadvantage to doing systemic therapy first? Could you avoid systemic therapy if you had surgery first? So ovarian cancer treatment uh, is really a, a medley of chemotherapy and surgery. And the question is what combination and in what order. We do know for women that have smaller disease burden that's typically confined to the ovary or perhaps in uh, locations that is would not require multiple uh, surgical procedures, uh, that they do actually have a survival benefit to initiating their treatment with uh, surgery followed by chemotherapy. On the flip side, as we had mentioned, those with significant amount of disease in various locations uh, have been shown to benefit from receiving the chemotherapy first. Uh, we almost never treat with one without the other, um, and this disease has been something uh, that has been um, traditionally treated uh, with both a combination of those two uh, of those two options. And so, where do you see? therapy moving in the future? What are what are the exciting developments that you've seen, say, in the last year or so? And, and what are the exciting things that are coming down the pike that women who may be facing ovarian cancer should know about? Well, our dream in ovarian cancer is to see this disease detected at its preclinical or very early occult phases. The ability to detect this through a simple blood test or a screening test would really revolutionize uh, ovarian cancer uh, treatment and the experience for patients who do face this disease. 
there are many groups who are working on developing tests like this, but they really are uh, in the research setting only. And, and until then, uh, we need to focus on how best to manage patients uh, who present with advanced disease. We've seen a number of approvals and new drugs and new therapies in ovarian cancer just in the last one to two years. And when we think back to 10 years ago, the number of different treatments that a patient would have open to her are significantly increased. Uh, and we're excited to be able to offer patients treatment that can even be taken as an oral tablet um, once or twice a day at home that may help reduce their risk of ovarian cancer coming back. We even see patients who uh, experience ovarian cancer survival as a chronic disease. Um, and until we can develop uh, a reliable screening tests that can detect this very early, uh, we hope to improve outcomes uh, and extend uh, survival as long as possible, uh, perhaps even until the next, the next best, the best thing comes down the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds exciting, especially when you think about um, where we started this conversation, which was talking about how ovarian cancer um, is a disproportionate uh, killer of women uh, with cancer as opposed to uh, other gynecologic malignancies. But the concept of finding it early and finding new treatments, um, especially oral treatments, is certainly exciting. Which brings me to my last question, which is, you know, this era of COVID has made us all think a little bit more creatively about how we treat patients with cancer, um, you know, trying to avoid having them in hospital settings and so on. How has this affected your practice in terms of treating patients with ovarian cancer? And what are some of the options that women have availed themselves of that they may not have previously? I have to say one of the saddest things to see uh, in the COVID era is women who come in with delayed diagnosis. Um, and I know that that stems from uh, personal concern of exposure uh, in going into their healthcare providers. But I would encourage all women to reach out to their practitioners in order to establish either a telephone or a video visit uh, so that they can have some time to meet with their practitioner and discuss some of the symptoms that we've been talking about today. We have really revolutionized our ability to access patients in their home environment or in an environment that is most convenient for them. And I hope that telephone and video, video visits will be something that we can continue to use as we move forward outside of the COVID era so that we can provide, um, you know, really uh, meaningful and convenient care to people um, when they need it most. Dr. Mitchell Clark is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.